let yourself listen tonight. Don't listen to remember anything in particular. Um, No tests, no quiz. Just listen to sense what resonates as true for you, as something that you already know in the wisdom heart that you carry. Um, And if it resonates as true, as it's really a reminder of something that you can then draw upon in your life. A, a, a few weeks ago, a couple of few weeks ago, when I was here for Monday night, I did a talk about various peripatetic Dharma adventures from spending time with Ramdas on Maui and teaching together, doing teaching for the law school at Berkeley or Wisdom 2.0, the Silicon Valley Tech Wisdom Fair and things like that. Um, and tonight is a different is a different kind of a talk. Also, some reflections from my own practice and journey. Um, But I'd like to talk about retreat practice, which we do very rarely on Monday night, partly because I just finished um, sitting for two weeks of our March month-long silent retreat. And I wanted to talk about how the inner life of meditation practice that we just did as we sat here for the first half hour or so how that can unfold at times on retreat. And we have this really beautiful retreat center, and you sign up for a retreat, and you go, if you've never been on retreat here, or maybe never on retreat at all, and maybe you go for a week or something like that, and you get a little beautiful little spare room, white room with a bed and a sink and not a whole lot else, and some cabinets to put your things in. And then you're in silence for most of the time, and you sit, or you do walking, or movement, or yoga, and then you sit again in silence, walk outside, and periodically you meet with a teacher to talk about what's happening in your meditation, and every day there's some instructions and some teachings given, but mostly you're with yourself. So I was on retreat for these two weeks, um, and I have a little one-room writer's cabin that's up in the retreat center. And mostly it rained. You remember that, yeah? That was very recent. And in the Buddhist tradition, um, all the monks and nuns for the last 2,500 years are supposed to pause when the rainy season comes and go on retreat because it's muddy and it's not a very good time to travel anyway. And the rains are said to be conducive to turning inward. There's this passage from the Christian mystic Thomas Merton. He writes, The rain I am in is not like the rain of cities. It fills the woods with an immense and confused sound, covers the roof of the cabin. And I listen because it reminds me again and again that the whole world runs by rhythms that I have not yet learned to recognize, rhythms that are not those of the engineer. I came up here from the monastic hall last night, and the night became very dark. The rain surrounded the cabin with its enormous virginal myth, a whole world of meaning, of secrecy, 
of silence, of rumor. Think of it, all that speech pouring down, selling nothing, judging nobody, drenching the thick mulch of dead leaves, soaking the trees, filling the gullies and crannies of the woods with water, washing out the places where construction has stripped the hillside. What a thing it is to sit absolutely alone in the forest at night, cherished by this wonderful, unintelligent, perfectly innocent speech the most comforting speech in the world, the talk that rain makes by itself over all the ridges, the talk of the watercourses in the hollows. Nobody started it. Nobody's going to stop it. It will talk as long as it wants the rain, and as long as it talks, I will sit here and listen. And so you start to hear in his poetic description the invitation to take your seat or your place in a bigger world than the world of our obligations and our to-do lists and, you know, our daily rounds, to step outside and to come home to yourself in a different way, to come home to yourself in the turning of the seasons and the drenching of the gullies and the mystery of being part of the web of life, because that rainwater is also in your blood, in your saliva, in the tears, in your eyes. It is part of who you are. And you know this. When I talk about retreat tonight, it is, it's just a reminder, because we are surrounded by a vast silence, and we live in a culture that's afraid of silence multitasking, busy all the time. And yet something in us longs for silence. And the silence of retreats is not the silence of some people were punished, you know, you're being too loud, go to your room. It's that kind of silence. Or you spoke up and you shouldn't. We call it affectionate silence. It's the silence of being in a receptive, affectionate openness to yourself and the world around and going into the meditation hall in the month of March, as I did to sit sometimes, it was very quiet because there was a, almost 100 people sitting the two-month February-March retreat. And they'd been sitting already, many of them, for weeks. And it was so still in there. You just go and sit down, and it's like, if, you know, when you're on the freeway and you get behind a great big truck and it sort of pulls you along drafting? It was like that kind of yogic drafting or something like that, right? <laughs> You go in, and especially as it got into the evening, it would be so still, and people were just sitting in this very deep place. Um, so I loved that. And I remember actually, because I've been leading these long retreats for many years, one of our first three-month retreats that we had on the East Coast back in the 70s. And there was a man whose specialty was, he was a psychic, was training people to have out-of-body experiences, which is also what happens sometimes. You can do it deliberately. It happens on occasion in retreat for people different ways. And you've all heard of it because people, it happens to people in accidents and things like that, but it can be more deliberate. Anyway, he came in to talk in a meeting with his teachers, and he said, I was sitting, it's now the middle of the three-month retreat, And I woke up in the middle of the night, 
and I wanted to go in the meditation hall, but another part of me really wanted to sleep, and I could feel myself leave my body and do this kind of psychic, um, you know, out-of-the-body experience. I know how to do that. And so I, I, I left, my body was sleeping, and I just, just drifted down through the corridors and went to the meditation hall. It was three in the morning, and there were four people sitting in there, and about ten others in their psychic bodies. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. It may, he may have made the whole thing up. But what's beautiful is that when you come in this stillness and silence, like the rain that Thomas Burton talked about, you begin to open your intuition and your senses, and the, the quality of mystery starts to show itself. Now, of course, on the first level, what happens is you just quiet down. There's a kind of settling of body and mind, and you use your breath or some simple meditation focus. Um, many of you have heard me tell the story of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi Middle Eastern holy fool who went into the bank to cash a check one day, and they said, could you please identify yourself? So he reached in his pocket and pulled out a small mirror and said, yep, that's me, all right. Yeah. <laughs> And what happens in the first days of a silent retreat um, is that you, you're not distracted by the external things, and so you look in the mirror, basically. Um, huh. I had a, 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 a good friend who was the CEO of one of the top ten companies in America, very huge, huge multinational, whatever, who came on his first 10-day retreat. He'd done day-longs and other practices. And he actually had quite a deep experience. It was last year. And he came to meet with me at the end of the retreat. And he said, conversation, he said, um, I said, how did it go? And we sort of talking. He said, I should have dressed better. <laughs> oh, well, that's a really weird thing to say, right? He said, why is that? He said, well, when you're meeting yourself for the first time, you want to look good, <laughs> you know? So there you sit, minding your own business, so to speak, and the settling part, first the body starts to settle, and your body holds tension in the jaw or the back or the neck or the places where when you get in conflict or you're in a hurry or you're not paying attention or whatever, and then something happens, and you just tighten. And we each have the, the patterns of tightening that build up, and when you sit, they start to release, and so the body holds tension and exhaustion and restlessness and these various patterns of holding and pain and so forth. And part of settling down is just letting that stuff have space to open and soften and release. But it's not just the body. That as you sit and take time, um, the heart too wants to open. We're like a, a plant or a flower or something. You don't have to you don't want to pull the petals open, but to sit quietly is like watering, and things just want to open if they're given attention and time. And so the unfinished business of the heart. You sit in the, the grief that you haven't had time to grieve because you've been too busy with your obligations and so forth. The tears come, or, or the longing that's there, um, or all the things inside, the, the worries that you might have, you know, the frustrations that you've been carrying, the anger, the, you know, 
Or maybe when you sit and get quiet, you feel as well, you feel the madness of modern culture that's with you, the injustice or the continuing warfare or the racism or environmental destruction, the things that you you know, know are true, you also carry those in your heart. And so they begin to show themselves to you. You see your worries. You know, you're worrying about money or you're worried about this relationship. You also see the beautiful things, your creativity, your longing, all this stuff comes up. And then you think, well, I shouldn't be wasting my time sitting. I gotta get back to, I gotta tend to this, right? Um, I'm, this is really important. There's a, a, a little quotation that helped me when I was thinking about the important things I had to do from, from General Charles de Gaulle in France, where he said, the graveyards are full of indispensable people. <laughs> right? And we think that we're indispensable, right? But it's not actually true. And so you see all of this, and you just sit with what you love and the creativity and the things that you care about and the worries and loneliness and so forth. And then you see your mind take each one of those, and then it spins out. How, how do I solve this? How will I look? Will this succeed? Will I be a fool? Will I be loved? You know what the mind does. It has no pride at all. And it just keeps... As, as Zen master Ryokan says, uh, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. <laughs> if you have a choice between humble and cocky, go with cocky. There's always time to be humble later once you've been proven horrendously wrong. So you see your fears, your foolishness, all the stuff that you carry, and then there is um, yogi mind that comes, which is an amazing thing, yogi mind. Um, on one three-month retreat, at the end, there's this thing called Vipassana romance that happens on these meditation retreats, where you're sitting in silence and you kind of notice not supposed to, just finding my business, but there's somebody interesting there, you know, and the next thing you know, the fantasies start going and you're still just trying to find your breath, right? And, and you know, it goes on and on and, and some people get, it's like, oh my God, they get engaged, they get married, they have kids, right? All and they've never even talked to this person, right? So anyway, at the end of this three-month retreat, this woman had fallen in love with this guy in her mind, right? You know? And she wrote him this beautiful love letter and tucked it into his, it was some years ago, tucked it into his Birkenstock. You can tell what generation. <laughs> Unfortunately, the green strap Birkenstocks that he wore were also being worn by a couple of other men on that retreat. And she put the note in the wrong shoes. And this guy got this note from this woman. I mean, this is just what our minds do, you know. Or the managers of the retreats will say, somebody comes running into the office and they say, chocolate caramels. And they go, okay, what's going on? And it turns out that person was sitting all day and their grief came and, and the person, that's because the person that was nearing the, near, sitting near them began to weep. And <clears throat> you don't mess with people. You give them their space because sometimes, yes, you want to comfort somebody, but sometimes people, you know, people uh, have tried to take away 
our experience of tears or longing or whatever, and just to allow you to have your experience, we just leave. So there was somebody weeping, <clears throat> this other woman, and she reminded this meditator of her little sister when they were girls, and when their dog died, and how, un- you know, her tears, her grief kept flowing, and how unrequited that that grief was. And then, you know, her dad took them out to this place to get chocolate caramels or something. It was like the first moment where she could stop crying and breathe. And so she came rushing, we need chocolate caramels for this, you know. And it was just all this huge fantasy that had happened in her mind. Um, And the manager said, yes, at the end of the retreat, you can go out and get, you know, your chocolate caramels or whatever it is. But anyway, you start to sit and quiet down. The body settles, the heart releases what needs to be listened to. The mind tells all the stories. And then as you get quiet, might take a few days, um, you gradually sense that there are three different, I'd like to call them baskets or dimensions to your inner experience. One basket is the running Thoughts, commentary, judgments, perceptions, ideas, and so forth, um, and the feelings that go with them, basically we'll call it your personality, right? And then as you start to quiet, there are sometimes gaps between the thoughts or the ideas about things, and you start to have more time just with the direct sense experience of sitting in the dining room and taking a cup of mint tea, and the whole world becomes the cup of mint tea, the warmth in your hand and the steam rising from it and the taste of mint on your tongue, you know, in the fields of mint somewhere that that was picked from, and the, the, the poem from Hafez in Arabic about, you know, mint tea. But somehow it's not in the idea. It's you become so touched by the direct experience of your senses. Or you walk outside and you see people walking, doing walking meditation, and they look like they're two years old again after some days. And they take a step on the grass and then they pause and they look at a flower. And There's some kind of coming alive back to the seeing and hearing and sensing in the body. So there's the personality that's going. Then there is the mindfulness that brings us into the senses that we've lost running around so much. And then the third basket, which mindfulness is the gateway to, is the basket of awareness itself, of that knowing, that consciousness, the witnessing. I talked about a couple or a few weeks ago, Ram Dass's phrase for it is, I am loving awareness. I am like, you know, there's the personality and there's the senses and here's this and all that. I am loving awareness. I am the space of knowing, the witnessing. Who are you? Who are you really? And each of us can shift between these baskets from the basket of personality, perceptions, thoughts, ideas to the basket of just direct, immediate sense experience to the space of loving awareness. Who are you? 
I am loving awareness. I am loving awareness. And the loving awareness allows you to witness or know what is happening, the joys and sorrows and gain and loss, um, but it isn't entangled in it. It's as if it could bow to it and say, oh yeah, this too. Antonio Machado, he says, when the water wheel of thought slows down and the cup's empty, my soul is not asleep, it is awake, wide awake. It neither sleeps nor dreams, but watches its eyes wide open, far off things, and listens at the shores of great silence. And so there starts to open a sense of stillness that can witness the longings and loves and fears and imaginings of the mind and the emotions that come and the senses. But things become quieter and still. Now the opening of the senses is a beautiful thing because they're kind of communion that happens um, like the like the cup of mint tea and you know, you've seen the turkeys are in, you know, full heat mating regalia and dancing, you know, nature's glory out there. And you could also hear the owls, some of you, hooting in the beginning of the meditation. And it's so alive out there. It always is. But when you come on retreat and you take just a few steps outside on the land and I would look down and there is the, the, this carpet of new green leaves up, you know, in the forest floor, chartreuse-colored, covered with the diamonds of dewdrops, you know, in the Zen poem. Um, the whole moon and sky held in a drop of dew in the grass. And you see that in the littlest thing there's the sense of mystery and infinity. And it's not some nice poetic thing that you're supposed to look for. It's just there, because you're there. I remember walking down the path through the woods near the dining hall a couple of springs ago, and I saw this brown mound right at the edge of the path. And I thought, hmm, what's that? And I slowed down. It was a baby deer, all curled in, you know, And I thought, gosh, it's right by the path. I hope it's okay. I hope it didn't die. You know, why would it be so, so visible, even though it was a very small path? And so I walked very slowly and closely near it and then just stood meditating quietly for a while. And all of a sudden, one eye opened like that and then shut very quickly, like, (laughs) oh my God, there's a monster there. (laughs) And I felt so relieved. Okay, it's all right. Mama left it there, right? And then I walked slowly away, and I came back 20 minutes later, and it was gone. But the owls and the fawns and the night sky, which is a certain shade of blue, certain shades of blue. It has all these luminous blue textures to it. And my friend Wes Nisker, who teaches here, he doesn't like to use the word sky He says, you're not looking at sky, you're looking at space. That's what it is. It's space and it's vast. You know, Anna Akhmatova, poet, 
She writes, oh, is it Anna? Oh, no, it's Gabrielle Mistral. Sorry. A woman is singing in the valley. The shadows falling blot her out, but her song spreads over the fields. Her heart is broken, like the jar she dropped this afternoon among the pebbles in the brook. Does she sing for a husband who looks at her silently in the dusk, or for a child whom her song caresses? Or does she sing for her own heart, more helpless than a babe at nightfall? Night grows maternal before this song that goes to meet it. The stars with a sweetness that is human are beginning to come out. The sky full of stars becomes human and understands the sorrows of this world. Her song, as pure as water filled with light, cleanses the plain and rinses the mean air of day in which men hate. And from the throat of this woman who keeps on singing, day rises nobly, evaporating toward the stars. And in some way you begin to live in a poetic world on retreat, not so much because of language, some may have poetic words, but because poetry is the music of language that speaks of mystery and rhythm and connection. And you start to see it. And somebody once asked on a retreat, they were a bhakti, they did a lot of Hindu chanting and devotion and Jewish liturgy, and they just loved singing and so forth, and, and love of God and all that, and, which the Buddhist temples, by the way, are also full of if you go to Tibet or Burma or Thailand and so forth. These retreats are kind of austere compared to what you find in all those Buddhist cultures. said, where is the devotion in this practice? Just a fair question. We could do more chanting and stuff like that. (laughs) And what I said was that, in my experience, when the mind quiets and the heart opens and the senses become alive, um, attention itself, mindfulness itself, is the deepest devotion. It's really devotion to the mystery that's given to us. So a friend, I was interviewing different teachers for this book a decade or more ago about their meditation experiences. And this was a a Zen teacher who said he'd had this wonderful dream about climbing a mountain with an ice cream cone in his hand right before he went on retreat. Now, retreats can be hard, so I don't mean to, you know, make it all sound so beautiful. It's also, you you know, your back aches and your body goes through stuff and you're restless and you're worried. And you have all that. But when you start to quiet, he said, so I went on the spring retreat after this dream and the meditation became pure and deep, but I was wise enough just to let it go and stay present. And then my mind fell into chaos and I thought, well, I was wrong. It's not going to be sweet. But instead of trying to cut the confusion away, I sat and opened myself to the chaos with all my heart. And then body, mind, the world started to open. It was like a wave washing over me. And I became filled with joy and clarity, resisting nothing. Empty and full, cool winter, warm spring. And I felt I understood everything. And I remember sitting in the afternoon when everyone is tired and stiff and sleepy. And I was so happy. 
And we go to see the Zen master who would ask these impossible questions. And I smiled and I said, oh, I know the answer to that one. (laughs) And I kept sitting and the energy built. And finally I went into the master and he asked one of the oldest koans, punctured with a small hand gesture, like what is the sound of one hand or one of those koans. And with this gesture, the whole room fell away. Everything was gone, the wind, the stars, the dogs outside. We all disappeared into the same vastness. There was nothing and everything. And I laughed and I laughed in astonishment. I knew the mind of my teacher. I knew the age of the world. My body was transparent. The blowing of the wind was my breath. My steps were earth moving herself. And after this life was so joyful, alive, my fears were washed away. And even though I was smiling for months, it was an odd thing. I didn't tell anyone what was happening because I knew somehow people would feel left out. And I became aware of all the painful limitations in this world, those that also have to be held in the same vast compassion. This is like a sales pitch for retreat, right? (laughs) It's it's not bad. So a little more with the plot. As you get more settled from the baskets of the personality and the senses openings, beautiful description, and then resting in awareness itself, there happens naturally a shift to witnessing. And the practices, the insight process, the way things happen become more visible to you as you're the witness. Yes, you witness the senses coming and going, but you also see the repetitive cycles of the samsaric nature of incarnation. And everything has in its nature both beauty and poignancy and suffering, even in the, even in the gorgeous things, because how long will it last? And then it will be lost. And you see the truth that everything is changing, that we are a river. It's not that's a river, but we are a river. Everything is impermanent. Everything is unreliable because it's in change. And none of it can be possessed. Jane Hirschfield, poet, friend, she writes, Perishable, it said on the plastic container, and below it in different ink, the date to be used by the last teaspoon consumed. I find myself, I found myself looking now inside the knees, now turning over each foot to look at the sole, then at the leaves of the young tomato plants, and then at the arguing jays, under the wooden table and lifted stones, looking, perishable, coffee cups, olives, Cheeses, hunger, sorrow, fears, these two would certainly vanish without knowing when. How suddenly then the strange happiness took me, like a man with strong hands and strong mouth, inside that hour, with its clashings and perishing perfume. And so there's a sense as you get quiet, both of the ungraspability of life, that we can't hold on to it. And at the same time, how beautifully poignant it is, how, how you don't want to miss a, 
a moment of it because this is what we're given, this moment and this one. And the settling deepens even more. And you learn how to shift from the breath and the body and the waves of thoughts to rest more and more just in the state of mind itself. And this is really important for people who've been practicing meditation for a time because the focus can be on the breath or on sensing the sensations in the body or knowing the movement of feelings or thoughts. But what becomes important at some point is to let go of the experiences and rest in the witnessing and in the calm and the stillness and the beauty and the luminous nature of mind when it's not grasping things. Thich Nhat Hanh's instructions, breathing in, I calm the body. Breathing out, I quiet the mind. So it's not focusing on the breath, but it's using the breath to come to a profound and open stillness. And with this stillness, an interesting thing happens as you get quieter and deeper and more collected or concentrated or present. And that is there, the inner experience is one of cleansing, of a kind of inner purity or spaciousness. It's delicious. And mind becomes luminous. And you can read about this in all the different mystical traditions, the Christian and the Jewish and Hindu and, you know, others, shamanic tradition. But basically when consciousness is no longer grasping and resisting and judging the thoughts or, you know, clinging to the sense experience, but just open and still, it fills with light. And of course, because the Buddha was a list maker and the followers of the Buddha were bigger list makers, there are 25 (laughs) kinds of luminosity. There's fireflies and there's, you know, light as if moonlight shining on you and there's the body dissolving into light and then there's light like in the sun in the middle of the day. You sit, I'd sit in my room and it was dark and it felt like the cabin filled with light. And there are, again, 21 levels of silence in the lists, right? (laughs) Incredible. And so the focus of the meditation becomes less on the experiences and more on just the being and the presence. And then it becomes easy to sit for an hour or two hours. And I was doing a loving-kindness practice. I started with forgiveness for a time, and then I just did these phrases of metta, of loving-kindness, over and over and over and over and over again for myself, for loved ones, for benefactors, for a whole list of people, neutral people. Neutral people are fun. They're the ones that you don't really know well. The person, you know, down at um, the gas station in Fairfax where I get my, you know, fill my tank up. Because you do that after a while, um, and then you fall in love with them. You know, and you drive in the gas station and say, oh, my neutral person, I love you, you know. You don't say that, but you do, right? And then I had mildly difficult people I did, and more difficult. And then, you know, you change the categories to keep yourself, the metta, the love going. You do the directions, north, south, east, and west, and those who are young and old, and those being born, and those dying. And, and, um, and then I did all, all women, and women in the north, and the south, and east, west, and above, and below, and men. It was really interesting to do women and men. Because the energy of just envisioning and feeling the sense of the feminine in every direction of the earth and the 
the feminine bodies, both women as humans and feminine in all these forms, was so different, wishing, loving thoughts, than the masculine. And then, if things become very still and quiet and there's this deep sense of collectedness, it's possible to enter concentration states, jhana or samadhi states, there's different names for them. And basically what they're like is that if you imagine being on the ocean with some choppy waves and you've learned you're swimming out there or, you know, floating in the water or something like that, and you kind of learn to float and quiet yourself. And then whether it's you've got a, you know, tank on your back or not, but somehow you're able to dive from the surface down into the water. To enter the jhana states or the samadhi states is like going from the surface of sense experience and personality and so forth and dropping to these dimensions of consciousness that are silent and huge um, and incredibly joyful. There's, there's joy, there's rapture. Yes, there's 24 kinds of rapture, right? In one of those lists. There's happiness. And your body gets drenched with it. It's like all the, so the DNA goes, yay, you know, this is really, the Buddha calls this the most wholesome of all happiness, you know, the most beneficial, because somehow there's a collectedness and a presence in it. Um, and then from this vastness, things seem so huge. Um, doing my loving kindness, I would just kind of send beams of love like like a, a lighthouse out to different directions in the world. So it was really kind of fun. And then the dreams become wild on retreat, you know, all kinds of wild dreams. Sometimes during sleep, sometimes, I mean, I had this whole vision. I had this pain in my heart and it was dark and it felt like lead. And I thought, okay, you know, lead, dark, and then it was contracted and it felt like I was dying. Okay, dying, dying. Let's see what happens. And just kind of hanging out with it, you know. And it got more and more compressed, and it felt like I was just becoming like I was underneath some huge mountain or something like that, and a tremendous amount of pain and fire and heat. And I just stayed with it for a while, and all of a sudden, it started to open, and it was a diamond. It was just archetypal. It just did it. It was a diamond. And then the diamond moved up to my eyes, and I became like a dragon. I could see, and it was cold and incredibly clear. I mean, I was a reptile. Dragons, by the way, as dinosaurs, are cold-blooded, you know. And it was just this whole interesting, so all kinds of wild, weird, shamanic stuff. It was fun. And the mind, when it gets concentrated, becomes, there are words in Sanskrit for pliant and malleable. Basically, what it means is that when you become really steady in meditation, you can say to the attention, sit, stay, like a puppy, right? And it just stays. Okay, stay on the breath. Just does it for a hundred breaths, a thousand breaths. All right, now direct love that way. And it just does it. It's an amazing thing. It actually can be trained. And all this modern neuroscience shows that capacity. Um, And then from this, this deep stillness and collectedness things become even more impersonal. And the body becomes a river of just elements. Elements meaning the earth element, hard and soft, rough and smooth, and the fire element, cool and warm, and the 
air element, a vibration, the water element, and you feel for the body and it's not there. What you feel is temperature and vibration. In fact, there was a, a monastery where I trained in where we did practice of dissolving human ordinary experience into vibration and you would eventually rest in the heart center and every thought had a little vibration. You could even tell before a thought there was like a little pre-thought burp that was going to happen out of the, out of the unconscious, you know, and it had a little ripple. And every sound that would hit the eardrum could be felt resonating at the heart. If you pay attention right now and bring your attention to your heart center, you could actually feel that, not just at your ear, but you feel it inside. And everything, became vibrations. And this is seems like string theory or something, in the middle of this vibration. Rivers of perceptions and thoughts all just dissolving into vibrations. And things become like pixels on a screen, you know. iPad 3, whatever. Very high def. Um, microscopic. Or like fireflies. Um, or you can open the lens of consciousness and it becomes macroscopic, wide-angle. And there's the sense of vastness. And even now as we sit, you can imagine the moon circling the Earth and Mars in its orbit and Venus there. And we're dancing in the middle of the solar system. And the thing about the mind is it has no limits and boundaries. And it does it instantly, faster than the speed of light. You know, it takes seven minutes for light to get here from the sun. But I say, picture the sun midday, and there it is. No minutes at all. And this huge vastness opens up. And you start to sense that which is timeless and deathless. And by that I mean that in the vastness you see your life, your incarnation, your personality, your longings, your loves, your attachments, all the things that matter to you, um, the organism of your body, and all that you care about. But you also see there's that, and then there's this vast, timeless space of knowing. And when you're in the identification of this incarnation, you're afraid to die, and you don't want to lose things, and you love, and you hate, and you do all those things, because that's what it means to be human, and it's completely fine. But... Malgaraja went to the Buddha one day and he said, I hear you are a great sage. Tell me, how can a person practice so they are not seen by the king of death? How do you get beyond death? And the Buddha said, look upon this world as empty, as a play of form and emptiness, and do not cling to a single thing as I or me or mine. One who does not grasp and say, this is me, this is mine, will not be seen by the king of death. And so there's this kind of mystical experience, but you also know it. You know it if you've been in the hospital or you've had a car accident or you've sat with someone dying. There's that mystery when the curtain gets drawn between the worlds and there is their body and they were there and then they're not in that way. And you're a part of that too. So we all know this and there's an opening to the timeless. Now, the thing about all this mystical stuff is that you'd think, I mean, I used to hope, and the party line was that, okay, you have all these visions and experiences and so forth, 
and it's going to change you forever and you'll live happily ever after and be enlightened and liberated and stuff like that. But it just turns out it doesn't work that way. (laughs) How it works is, um, in this words of René Domal, the author of Mount Analog, he said, you cannot stay on the summit together. You cannot stay on the summit forever. You climb and you see. You have this vast vision. And there is an art of conducting yourself back in the realms of humanity from what you've seen on the mountaintop that gives you a freedom to love, to move, but it doesn't mean that you stay on top of the mountain. Do you understand this? And it means when you walk in the high Sierras, you know, and go up to Tuolumne Meadows, or when you walk by the ocean after a wild storm, or, you know, you listen to an amazing piece of music or make love in a way that's transporting and you come back and you say, wow, incarnation, amazing thing, you know. That too is your gateway to this mystery. And sometimes you'll be in your personality, and I've noticed this, you know, sometimes I feel very free and, yeah, whatever will happen, it's not who I really am. And sometimes there's very strong identification and attachment. And I just accept it now. It's like, oh, you know, personality's like your pet right? You've got it on a leash, it comes along with you, and you might as well treat it kindly. You've got to use it. They're there, it's okay, you know. And the idealization is actually a problem. It's like Katagiri Roshi, this beautiful Zen master, who died of cancer. Oh my heavens, you know, if he was a Zen master, how could he get cancer? But so did Suzuki Roshi and His Holiness Karmapa and so forth. We've got human bodies, human incarnations. And he was lying there in the last weeks of his life and the students were around tending and taking care, but they were also, you know, watching to see how it was going. And he had children, so of course, much, much, much harder. And at one point he sat up, all these students were around. He said, you're all watching me, aren't you? You want to see, you want to see how the Zen master is going to (laughs) die, right? And then he started kicking his legs and pounding his hands and saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to That's how I'm going to die. How about that? You know? <laughs> Lay back down, you know. So the, there's some part of us that's very wise, that knows, even as you listen to these stories, you don't have to go on retreat because it, it's something that you, you are. Um, and yet, And yet retreat's also a magic thing to do. There I was walking through the Miami airport some years ago, and this guy comes up to me and says, Jack? I said, hi, hello. It happens, you know. Um, I sat a retreat with you back in 1977 at IMS in Barrie, the three-month retreat. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, vaguely, you know, 25 years older. He said, yeah, I had a heart attack last year, and, you know, I was being wheeled into the surgery for emergency, you know, surgery, he said, almost died. And he said, and I'm not a very good meditator after that retreat. I kept it up for a while, but, you know, I haven't really done much. He said, but lying on that gurney going down the hall, it all came back. (laughs) It all came back. I knew what it meant to be present and to let go and to be open. He said, it all came back. Thank you. Thank you. You know, or I got this letter Dear Jack, I thought you might enjoy this from my metta practice. Last year, 
I disembarked from a flight at Kuala Lumpur International Airport. I groaned upon walking into the Mammoth Customs area. The place was packed and lines stretched to the immigration station as far as one could see and to boot the air conditioning was on the fritz. It was so hot and steamy and I realized I was in for a very lengthy, slow shuffle that would end only with the standard stamp and a dismissal from a disinterested, if not hostile, customs officer. What a drag this is going to be. Two hours standing here. I whined for a while as I scanned the area. Finally, heaving an inward sigh, I started to chant metta for myself. May I be safe, may I be healthy, well, happy, free. And I began to notice the people around me. Some appeared impatient and put out like myself, but there were unconcerned little children having fun and running around, and then I saw colorful faces and bodies and clothing representing cultures from all over the world, and I began to say my metta for them and wish the best to them on their journey. Metta for the whole lot of us in here, wherever you're headed, you know. And still chanting now for an hour, inwardly, I eventually approached a station. My turn came to face a tired-looking, mustached clerk as I placed my passport on the counter. He glanced at me, scanned and stamped my document, looked me in the eyes as he slid the passport back. What a fine photograph. You have a wonderful smile, he beamed in his Malaysian-accented English. I was walking in a- on air when I went to get my bags and baggage claim. So yes, there is something about going on retreat. Um, and you see it. If, you, if, if anyone wants to see the effect, you can come at the end of a week or a month-long retreat and see the Vipassana facelift, basically. <laughs> People look so clear, you know, in their eyes, and they walk around like they're still, you know, they're back in, you know, this beautiful, really beautiful kind of innocence or beginner's mind, to use Suzuki Roshi's phrase. Um, But it's also true that you don't need to go on retreat. It's a wonderful thing to do, um, and it enriches your life, especially because we do live in such a mad culture. But I was talking to a friend this week who'd never been on retreat, but was very much a practitioner of meditation and follower of the way, and she had a lot of depth to her. And I asked, what, what is it? How did, you, how did you come to your wisdom? And she was also big-hearted. She said, oh yeah, I had cancer in my 30s, you know, and then my, one of my children got meningitis and almost died, she said. And, and I had a meditation practice, and I needed it. I needed it for those years, and, and it saved my life. And she said, so I understand it. And it was so beautiful to talk to her. And it wasn't about retreat. It was just about the capacity for presence. So then it's, you know, what does nurture you? What brings you to that which is timeless? What reminds you that you can step out of the personality, not because you shouldn't have one and It has its joys and its sorrows, but because that's not who you really are. It's a part. But what brings you back to loving awareness? I am loving awareness. What brings you back to the reality of the present? 
poem from Sesla Milosh called Love. Love means to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals her heart without knowing it from various ills. The bird and a tree say to her, Beloved sister, we have found you. Then she wants to use herself and honor things so that they stand in the glow of ripeness. And it doesn't matter whether she knows what she serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. Love means to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things, for you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals her heart, heals his heart. And so there's something kind of remarkable. We live in a very individual culture, not in a culture that's so group-oriented, as everybody knows. All you have to do is go out on the highway and see each person in their steel box, you know, exuding carbon dioxide from the tailpipe in long rows and say, oh, and then everybody in their own room or their cubicle or whatever. Um, For us to be able to stop and open the membranes to let the body and mind quiet down in whatever way you can, um, to step into the vastness and see the personality incarnation, to see the sense of life itself. Um, It's really what allows you to love, what allows you to be free and move through this mystery, because you will suffer. You know that. We all have our measure of sorrows, and you will dance, um, and you have a magnificent spirit. And the Dharma, which is good in the beginning and good in the middle and good in the end, it said, is an invitation to that magnificent spirit in you to be open and free and to really know how to dance. So let's sit for a moment.
And so for the last thing this evening, very brief, I'd like us to do a really simple chant. Um, In India, when you meet a person, the greeting, the most common greeting is to put your hands together and say, Namaste, which means I honor the divine in you. I see the, the spirit, the soul behind the costume of your eyes and body. I see who you really are. And um, the root of that word, namaste, in Sanskrit is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects to. It's the first word in a lot of Buddhist texts. Um, And I'd like us just to chant namo nine times. And as you do, feel inwardly what it is you wish to bow to. It might be just the fact that you were able to sit with yourself tonight quietly for the first half an hour. Listen. It might be to someone that you care about who comes to mind or some place in the world that you want to tend with your heart. Um, Whatever calls to you. And then we'll go out into the spring evening. No. May your week ahead be blessed with stillness and love. Thank you.